Merry Christmas, such. Did the like delayed applause sign go off because you guys hit it and then it just like waved its way through over this way. Uh, man, it's good to have you guys. I don't know if you guys are bringing friends or family in here, but man, just good to have you guys. Merry Christmas all over the place. Whether you guys are traveling or whether you are stable, whether you're here, no matter what it looks like, uh, there's uh, definitely differences between some of the people that we've been talking to. Some are planted here, some are traveling, some are hitting the road like right after this on Sunday morning. Um, whatever it is, we are just so delighted that you guys are here with us and that we could be extended family all over the place. Seven Lakes is doing the same thing. They've got three services going on over there, so super exciting time. Um, you know, when, when you look at the Bible, it's written in two main sections. There's an Old Testament, there's a New Testament. And there is a predominant scripture in the Old Testament that describes the coming God, describes the coming hope, describes the coming Messiah, the promised one that is sprinkled all throughout the Old Testament, almost as if they were pointing up to another book that's yet to be written. And one of the primary scriptures that they keep going back to to describe this God that is yet to come one day is in Isaiah chapter 9. To us, a child is given and a son is born. The government is on his shoulders. He's a mighty God, a wonderful counselor, prince of peace, and the everlasting father. There's this description in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 9 that describes who everybody was waiting for. Now, I don't know if you know anything about waiting. Anybody know anything about waiting? Anybody know anything about waiting? Come on, if, if uh, I don't want to dabble there. Okay, so, um, do, okay, let's just say, do you know anything about waiting on the Lord? God may reveal something to you. He may say, this is a promise. This is for you. And then you're like, okay, Lord, I receive it by faith. This is mine. And then what do you, what do you end up doing? I just set you up. You end up waiting. This is a predominant practice and exercise of the scriptures. But did you know that this verse in Isaiah 9, the mighty God coming in with the government on his shoulder, the child and the, the son that is given to us, they waited 700 years. Yeah, you don't know anything about waiting. 700 years. Like, you're, you guys are delayed to go out to dinner. You're delayed getting the kids out. Come on, somebody. Hey, if your family here at the 8 a.m., I just applaud you. Well done. If you have kids in there in the G-Kids, I mean, you, you're crushing it. Like, already, you're, you are off to a great start. But if, it, so you know about waiting. You're like, you know, getting the whole people out of the door. They waited 700 years for that. So you can imagine the anticipation and the hope building up on this verse, waiting and looking in anticipation for the God who is coming, the Messiah, the promised one, is like a military entourage ripping open heaven, violently coming in. Why? Because he has the government on his shoulders. He 
He's a mighty God. Everybody was gonna be like, this is going to be forceful. It is gonna be nasty. It's gonna be heaven ripping open. You're gonna imagine like a movie scene, Jesus and all of his army side by side with angels behind him, horses and chariots just coming down forcefully ripping out the kingdom of earth and implying the kingdom of God. It's here, right? But that's not at all how he came. Like Luke chapter two describes a very different story of the anticipation of the arrival of royalty on earth. This, so this is, this is what it says. In those days a decree went out, and Caesar Augustus, without all the world should be registered. The first registration in this area of Syria, Quirinius was the governor, and all were registered, each to his own town. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the highest or the house of the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was also with child. She was pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in the manger because there was no more place in the inn. The, the arrival of Isaiah 9, the anticipated Messiah, God coming down, wasn't a form of a ripping open of heaven. It wasn't an army. It wasn't an entourage. It wasn't angels and chariots. It wasn't a massive announcement. He comes in hidden. He comes in almost in the background. He comes in subtly. He comes in almost in this hustle and bustle of a census. I mean, this town was booming. Business was, was extended. It was kind of like December and Christmas time. Everyone going everywhere. Everybody was preoccupied. And then all of a sudden, a baby was born. Not just any baby, fully God, fully man. And he arrives on the scene. This is how God came in. This is how he came. And, and you have to wonder, Isaiah 9, where is the mighty God on this arrival? Where is the wonderful counselor? Where is the prince of peace? Where is the everlasting father? You almost think like you missed an opportunity, God. You should have maybe come in on a very different entrance, but you need to know something about who God is. In Isaiah chapter 45, it says, truly you are a God Read this with me. Truly you are God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. The Savior hides himself. Why? Because this is the nature of God. God is powerful. He's everlasting. He's eternal, but he's invisible. And you can't think that just because he's invisible that means in your life, even today, that he's absent. Just because you don't see him doesn't mean he's not present. This is exactly how he came into the world, and that's exactly how he's been present all throughout the world. He's invisible. He's in the background. He's behind the scenes. He's coming into your life subtly. He's coming into your life under the radar. Why? Because he's a mighty God. He has wonderful counsel for those who want it. He wants to be a present everlasting father. He wants to be prince of peace inside of your heart to rule, to guide, and to protect you. 
but he doesn't force his way into anybody's life. He just comes in the background. And it's because the language of the New Testament picks up for the language of the hungry. If anybody is gonna be wholeheartedly after God, you'll find him. You wanna search for him, you'll find him. Ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and you'll know that that door to him is open. This is who God is. He's powerful, but don't take this to be an absent God. He's not distant. His name actually bears the moment that he is so close. In Matthew chapter one, this is actually how he's named that this is what his name will be called, Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God's not distant. He is present in your life as much as you want him to be. And if you're not aware of him, it's just because your eyes are blind to the fact that he is so near, so present. He can't, he can't help do what is in his nature. And if his name is the description of his nature, he is here among us. Although he might be hidden, coming in the background. This is who God is. And just because he's back there doesn't mean he's not present in your life. He's been doing this from the beginning. Look at Romans chapter one. God has been in the background, in display of his creation since the beginning of time. It says what can be known about God is very plain to all of us because God has shown it to us for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that God has made. So can I just tell you something? We, this is Paul, we, you and I, we're without excuse. It's not a fact that you don't believe in God. It's you're rebelling because you have so much evidence packed up and it's all around you. It's not a matter of your intellect just be like, hey, there's just not enough evidence that God exists. That's actually not true at all. There's ample evidence. It's our own hearts and minds who rebel against the fact that we don't think God exists. That last line comes true for all of us. We are without excuse. We will get to the time where God will rip open our eyes so that we can see him for who he is, see us for who we are, and see the rest of creation and say, oh, you have been showing yourself from the very beginning of time. He's hidden, he's invisible, but that doesn't make him any less powerful and present in our life today. This is the Christmas story, and it goes on. Luke chapter two. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone all around them, and the shepherds were filled with fear. The angel said to them, hey, listen, fear not. Behold, I bring you good news. Great joy will be for all the people. And for unto you, this sounds familiar, Isaiah 9 throwback. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is, here's his title, Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. So go find him. He's going to be a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly there was an, with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on, on earth, peace among those, listen to this, with whom God is pleased. And when the angel went away into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, well, 
You know what that means. We got to go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and a baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told. They wondered at what the shepherds told them. Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart, like she has the tendency to do. And the shepherds returned. What did they do? They glorified, praised God for all that they had heard and seen and that had been told to them and they saw and experienced and seen and told to them. I mean, what a night. They're on the night shift. Angel comes to them. Good news, great joy, fear not. Check it out. I need you to go, I need you to go look at this. So they go in haste and tell people the story. So here's an interesting question. Why would the God who is invisible coming behind the scenes, subtly coming in as a baby in the manger, a declaration of heaven, royalty coming to Peasantville Earth. Why would he tell the very first group to be shepherds? It's the very first group he announces. He sends an angel, say, hey, go tell them what I'm doing. I mean, he had, he had neighbors that were physically right by them. There was this, a, this is a packed town. Why do you have to leave town to go out into the pasture to tell the shepherds to then come in? Why can't you just knock on the door, send the angel? Listen, if an angel comes in, if a ghost comes in, if someone rises from the dead and shows up at your house, you're gonna pay attention to what they're saying. Well, why didn't God tell anybody else? Because... You need to know something about who shepherds were, like their nature in this vocation back in the first century. It wasn't a high rank. This, this wasn't a, a very uh, influential position, if you will. If society in the Jewish and the Hebrew culture had class system, the uh, shepherds would be some of the lowest. Listen, their, their witness wouldn't even be held up in a court of law, some commentaries would say. They can't, you can't even bring them in as an eye key witness because their voice isn't really heard in society. It's not recognized, not influential. Shepherds, they were not necessarily skilled or educated men, but they were faithful. They were loyal. They were strong. They were reliable. Just to say this frankly, shepherds were humble men. I mean, they spent time in the dirt, in the pastures, in the wilderness with their shepherds. They were caught here by an angel at night. They weren't pulling like second shift. They were doing third, fourth, and fifth shift. They, they would like sleep with the sheep. They would lie down with the sheep. They would rest with the sheep. They would eat. They would know their sheep so well that some would overeat. They would have to move them on to go get activity. Some wouldn't eat enough, they'd have to move them over to green pastures. Shepherds knew their sheep very well, deeply acquainted with them. They would protect the sheep, guide, feed, just so that they could be with them. Why does God choose this group? Because God chooses the humble. God chooses the humble. Did you know in, all throughout scripture, God speaks to the humble. He draws near to the humble. God uses the lowly things of this world to shame the wise. This is who God does. I mean, the gospel itself says, you know this one, the last, come on somebody, the last shall be then why the shepherds? Because maybe some would say that they were the last. He's choosing them because he's making them. This is the inversion of the gospel. 
Listen, the well and the, the to-do, the healthy, they don't need a doctor. You don't need a savior if you can do life on your own. You don't need a mighty God if you're gonna do ordinary things in life. God's coming for the ones who are hungry enough to search for him, not just to come in and play church and play religion. God wants somebody to come in and just keep pressing in, asking, seeking, knocking. I don't see you, God, but I'm gonna keep operating and walking by faith. This is who God's looking for. And he chooses his shepherds because he chooses humble men. He wants his name and his story honored, not altered. He doesn't want anybody playing or adding to or messing with the very purity of his name and his gospel. This is the story of what God's doing. He's choosing men who he can raise up, maybe out in the pasture in the wilderness for a season, shepherds who are humbled to bring out to be able to carry his message. God has something that he wants to carry, and it's so important that we recognize it's his presence. It's his presence. His presence is carried with his message. His promises are carried with his presence. They go together. All of his promises are a yes in him, this is who God is. He chooses the shepherds. He chooses the humble because he is a wonderful counselor. He counsels the humble. He speaks to the willing. He satisfies the hungry. This is who God is. It's his nature. If you're not fully satisfied with God, you have as much of God as you want. This is who he is. The story goes on. Luke chapter two. Baby's born, angel shows up to shepherds. Now Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple. Verse 22. And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy, which means set apart, to the Lord, to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law, the, the Levitical law, which is a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. I know what you're thinking. This is odd. Okay, so listen, God blesses Mary and Joseph with a human being, not just any human being, Emmanuel. You're gonna name this kid Jesus. He's the savior of the world. He's gonna take away the sins of the world. Mary's like, no pressure, I got this. And then when he's born, bring him up as is the law and present him to the Lord. When you do, you're gonna offer. If God gives you a child, the Messiah, the firstborn as a son, what would you give to the church? What would you give to the temple? What would you give to the priest? Two pigeons? Like, is that it? That's what the baby's worth? Now, now listen, before you like really go knock Mary and Joseph, you got two options here. They were just following the law. If you're rich, you would offer a lamb. If you were poor, you were offered two pigeons. That's what the law says in Leviticus. So you knew their status. Were they rich? No, because they were offering two pigeons. This is the only thing that they had to offer. Can I tell you that's exactly our offering today? You don't have much, but you know what God requires? Everything you have. Everything you have. 
And in exchange, you want to know what you get? Jesus as the Prince of Peace. God says, you can't have life abundantly unless you give up your life. This transaction that we see in verses 22 and 24 is just prayer. It's an exchange. Listen, you give up your worries, your anxiety, what do you get? Peace. You give up your life and you say, God, I want your life in me. You wanna know what you get? Peace. He is the prince of peace. Peace, don't think at all, it's passive. Peace is powerful. Peace guards you. Peace guides you. Peace keeps you. Peace is stable. Peace is known in Colossians as the king who rules over your heart. It is a great governmental system. If you are guided and led by peace, you are guided by the Savior who is ruling and reigning over your life. So the question then begs, if you lack peace, maybe you lack the ability to make God your Savior. Maybe you're God in your life and it's not going so well because it never does. But when we make God the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace, we make that God our God. We make him to be submitted, everything in our life to him. We get in exchange perfect peace. This is a wonderful exchange. Anybody want it? Luke chapter two, the story goes on. Later, this is 12 years past, and Jesus is now coming up to be a preteen. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover when Jesus was 12, according to the custom. And when the feast is ended, they were returning. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be with the group, they went a day's journey but then they began to search for Jesus among the relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him and they returned to Jerusalem searching for Jesus, after three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking questions. That's just a good student. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw them, they were astonished. And his mother, Mary, said, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Jesus says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And, did you, and they, uh, Mary and Joseph, they did not understand the saying that they spoke to them. And went, but they went down with them and came to Nazareth because Jesus was submissive. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is an amazing shift that happens at this point in the Christmas story. It's an amazing shift because of what is declared and shown. Uh, and it's not because Jesus was lost by Mary and Joseph, although that's significant. It's not what I'm referring to. Later on in this section, the parents of Jesus, Joseph and Mary, Jesus' earthly parents. This is the last time that Joseph's name and his relationship with Jesus will ever be mentioned. This is the last mention of Joseph as Jesus' earthly father. 
So if you read the rest of the gospels, you'll never see Joseph as Jesus's earthly father show up and be present. Never once again. This is his last mention. And this is significant because he also mentions for the first time a key word. I must be in my father's house. He introduces a shift from his earthly father leaving to the entry point of his everlasting father. And can I tell you, if you're fathers, your key role in life is to show your kids and everybody else who you adopt, you love on, you guide and you guard, your heavenly father. As earthly fathers, that is our key, that is our privilege. That is one of our main responsibilities. But it's also some of the deepest wounds that we have. So if you're here and you can think about your father for just a sec, your earthly father, you probably have some great experiences with him. You also probably have some of the deepest wounds. It's because your father is a key relationship to show you your heavenly father. He was never supposed to do it perfectly, nor does he, but the wounds and the hurts and the areas in which maybe he wasn't present in your life are also supposed to be gaps and times and moments that your everlasting father is going to and will and wants to fill the gaps and heal you. This is who God is. He's a mighty God. He comes in subtly as invisible, behind the scenes, still present, as a mighty God who is a prince of peace, wonderful counselor, and everlasting father. This is who he is. This is the Christmas story. This is the one that maybe some of us are deeply acquainted with, but need to be refreshed and reminded over the purity of the gospel, that God would love his people so much that he left royalty, he left heaven to come and be with us today because he wants to mend hearts. He wants to heal and love and guide. He wants to be present with us still today. And I don't know if you have this invitation, but if you want peace, make him your mighty God. If you want a father who heals your wounds of your earthly father, make him your mighty God. If you want counsel that is so wonderful and pure, make him your mighty God. And this is the easiest thing to do. It's three letters, it's one word. This is how you do it. You ask, you ask. Ask him to be present, ask him to be your father. Ask him to be peace. Ask him to be counsel because he wants to be a mighty God in your life.